If Fog Could Sing Stories by Charlie Price The Last Cockney Accent by Charlie Price Read by Charlie Price I can't say exactly what led me there. Some foolhardiness, some blind hope, I suppose. But they opened up a new sixth-form college in Hackney, and they were in need of a history tutor. The college was devoted solely to remedial teaching, excepting, on the recommendation of their disgruntled former educators, a cohort of inner-city sixteen-year-olds who'd failed to pass a minimum of five GCSEs. Evidently, that task of educational remedy was big enough, and the need for it urgent and significant enough, that a whole establishment was necessary to fulfil it. The bottom sets and remedial sets in mainstream schools had clearly proved inadequate in the case of black groves, unruly and troubled inhabitants. On the first day, the doors opened, an anxious bell sounding out their opening, and the headphoned and hooded youthful mass poured in, reeking of cigarette smoke and weed, with what I can only describe as a cacophony of primal chatter. In those days, I started my day with a cup of coffee the size of a refrigerator, so big I had to pull it around on a little luggage trolley. I cowered behind my huge cup of coffee as that terrifying onslaught approached me, multi-ethnic, economically deprived, grinning, loquacious, loud, so loud. Pandemonium was currency to them. Their mouths moved with the weight and the pugnacity and the savage potential of big cats, emitting this wild animal noise shaped but barely shaped into human words. I privately shivered and silently admonished myself that I was crazy, that I was going to get crucified. The newly appointed headmaster, we all realised immediately, was tough as old boots, with a heart of gold. But both that simile and the metaphor following it understated the reality. More correctly, he was tough as Stonehenge, with a heart like the sun. His moral core was furious, his execution of the law furiouser. He bestrode the yards of that school, not with a whip, but using his aura and his large voice, a sheathed, sword-like force, like a weapon. He had a few neck scales to his credit, naturally soft in speech, loud as a tempest when he needed to be. I commanded no such powers. I had worked with behaviourally challenging kids before. In one or two cases I had been deeply engaged and highly proud to make it my mission to get through to them. These souls I quickly and correctly identified as wounded, anguished, paranoid and lost. I felt I succeeded nominally. I would have to learn class by class how to reach these kids at Blackgrove. I knew that I couldn't face them too prepared. The lessons would have to evolve around them, but only as far and as flexibly as I allowed. I was to be their teacher, after all. Authority was understood in their world. I knew that they understood it well. The problem for all their teachers, including myself, was that they were suspicious of it. And, as our adolescence teaches us, in rebellion against it. So I set up my classroom, a sterile white square room, too hospital-like, too bright, I thought to myself immediately. I am a great believer in tweed and mahogany. 
not for its own sake, mind, but because darker tones, darker, classier shades of wall, carpet, ceiling, can calm the mobbings of an unruly class. White walls and their medic brightness do nothing to pacify a group's jitters, egregious already from the outset. It was MacDonald's lighting, fast, noisy, unfocused. Nicotine, further to that, is bad news for their undeveloped bodies, their premature inner lives. I entered the classroom ahead of the little rioters, thinking that there should be ten teachers, not one in our firefight, readying a table of exhibits and two history books. I put my assistant Steve in the corner. Steve is a shop-window dummy, stripped down to his unsexed nude, uh, that I always keep in the corner, so the class feels like it's being surveyed from behind. It really nonplusses them, always. I wheeled in my gargantuan coffee cup and drank a mouthful from it through a curly straw. Perhaps worth noting, I was at that time, and nothing has changed, very, very short, flat-footed. I have claws, and only one huge eye in the middle of my face. Kids at my previous schools had habitually called me Mike Wazowski, but this is ridiculous, as I am not green. The most important of the exhibits I displayed on the central desk at the front of the class was a glass box in which was stored, on rarely granted and very limited loan, it must be added, the last Cockney accent. You'll be well aware, of course, that David Icke was proved right, and a number of major public figures are in fact twelve-foot lizards. A decade after the Covid-20 pandemic, the lizards produced by the last major breeding programme hundreds of years ago, and their crossbreed descendants, decided that they no longer felt the need to hide their lizardness in human form. Your life is a sham, till you can shout, I am what I am. The royal family appropriated that song as their anthem, and turned into upright lizards, or green-scaled humanoid lizard quadroons, right then and there on national television. This civil rights movement didn't catch on in America until later. Anyway, I have a lot of lizard in me, but I am not green. Some of the kids have scales, but due to their socio-economic status, only a tiny bit of lizard blood has ever reached as far down as them. Lizards are associated with education and power and wealth. At any rate, over the last fifty years, all English Britons, most of the others too, now speak with a new lizardane accent, which in its most concentrated form is sarcastic, icy cold, soft and sibilant. The less lizardine you are, the louder your voice is. But regardless, regional working-class accents have declined. The English accent is now more standardised. The last Cockney accent sits in a glass case. It is a lightly glowing bluish mist. Sometimes it shimmers and spirals like a gamma ray. Sometimes if you look closely into its vaporous glassiness, you can see fleeting but unmistakable apparitions of pints beef-eaters, little union flags, little big bends, the face of a bulldog, footballs, Michael Caine smiling like a tit, bald-headedness. If you stand back a little way and cross your eyes at the last Cockney accent, sitting as a suspended mist in its gleaming glass case, you can see that a smiling mouth, a ghostly pair of big lips, crescent-shaped, lurks like a Cheshire cat smile. So, the first class. 
After their registration, the kids pour in and I hush them only with difficulty. Quiet, please. Please, quiet. I remember that I accidentally produced a chiasmus. A boy, porcine and irksome, goes in for a high five with false bonhomie, saying in a stupid voice, Please to meet you, I am much. To which the cackles of laughter, loudest from two girls who chew apparently eternal gum, erupt like Krakatoa in the small white room. At first I don't understand the voice, the mixed-up word order, and the resounding hilarity that follows, until a moment later I pick up the phrase the force and the word lightsaber from out of their giggling drone of ceaseless chatter, and I realise that they think I look like Yoda. That's a new one, I think, hardly perceptive, hardly accurate. I look nothing like the man, the small man thing. I'm not even green. The kids realise that they are bound to relent in class. They relent a little. I introduce myself, I go round, find out their names, something of what they know, which is invariably almost nothing, all the usual boring housekeeping and formalities. But you can't let them see that you think that the formalities are usual or boring. There can't be an iota of usualness or boringness visible in what you do, in the way you do it, in what you say and the way you say it. Or they'll start to doubt that you believe in what you teach, and they'll feel permitted to rebel against it and rubbish it. Everything must be an adventure, exciting and important. I introduce them to Steve. They look behind them, expecting to find a freckly, curly-haired person, but instead find a blank-faced mannequin. They are disarmed. Do you want to know a secret? Two secrets. One, the last Cockney accent isn't really on loan from the museum. I stole it from deep storage. It was archived long ago and forgotten about. No one knows I have it. It is mine. Two, I am an addict. To caffeine, yes, but more powerfully am I addicted to the last Cockney accent. There is a little tiny panel in the glass that can be opened. Open the panel very carefully and cover the gap with material of some kind immediately. A small square of cotton pillowcasing works very well. Don't let the last Cockney accent escape. Puncture into the material four or five little holes with a pin or a pen nib. Inhale. Suck very deep for four or five seconds. In its glass case, suspended as an ether, the last Cockney accent perpetuates itself and so does not die out. But it enters your bloodstream, a sidling drug filling you. When, you say, when I say you, I mean me, of course. Filling me with virility, masculinity, libido, violence and nostalgia. I feel I embody a past England. I feel like a final vestige, raging against the dying of the light. What is more, for forty minutes you talk with a Cockney accent. Anyway, I did what I could to placate the class, did what I could to still them and I ended up introducing them to it. This, my friends, is the last Cockney accent. I named what it was with decelerating, deliberate, emphatic slowness. There was silence for a few seconds. They all looked at me like I was mad, out of their swirling, disbelieving eyes. Then the silence was broken swiftly by the same unpleasant, porcine boy from earlier. Clearly something of a self-appointed class comedian 
who coughed the word bullshit into his closed fist. He was well practised at such sports. I gave him that. Even now I'll give him that. The way he enfolded the word into the short, sharp, seemingly accidental unintelligibility of a cough, so the class might hear it but not the teacher. He did not know my strengths, however. I am profoundly perceptive. I have extraordinary hearing. You think it's bullshit, do you? What's your name? Timothy, he replied. Come up here, Timothy. And he came. In front of the class, I took a brief but deep hit of the last Cockney accent, opening the little opening, covering it up and inhaling. The class was silent and watching carefully. I must have cackled a brief loud laugh. The pupil must have dilated in my one big eye. I remember saying, If you're going to muck me about, fatso, I'll cut you from arsehole to breakfast time. Then I hissed at Timothy, grabbed him at the temples, and held him in place, just before the ears, with my claws. And with my claws, I tore his little face off. This was a disciplinary matter, and I did lose my license to teach in the end. When they were brave enough to unite into a rabid mass and avenge their funny friend, I had a mutiny on my hands, and they blinded me in my good eye, and they annihilated Steve. I found out later that one of the kids even stole the last Cockney accent, got addicted to it, started coming into school sounding like Ray Winston, who, it might be added, turned out to be very lizardine, when the lizard folk shed their human skins.